Welcome to Talking Buildings. Broadcasting from the world-famous Bondi Beach. Bondi Radio. I'm Paul Angus, Sibsey Australia and New Zealand Regional Chair. As always, I'm joined by the ever-smiling and cheerful co-host, Sharon Pistongi, Sibsey BDM. It's a great day for a podcast, isn't it, Sharon? Hi, Paul. It certainly is. Uh, we're broadcasting from the world-famous Bondi Beach, and it's such a perfect day. The sun is shining, and we can see the ocean glistening just ahead. Um, in this episode, we'll be discussing a highly debatable topic that all engineers may confront during their career. For sure, Sharon. The theme of this discussion today revolves around ethics. Are you doing the right thing? Standing up for your ethical principles takes courage. Courage is the ability to face danger, difficulty, uncertainty, or pain without being overcome by fear. When you see something happening in the workplace that just doesn't seem right, do you have the courage to stand up and do something? What are you afraid of? Retribution? Disapproval? Your image? Damaged relationships? Or simply the unknown? Courage is about setting aside your fear and taking action for the good of yourself and the colleagues alike. Oh, Paul, though, that's easier to agree with in principle, wouldn't you agree? I mean, in reality, things like approval, positive image, strong trusting relationships are all quite important, part of um, working culture. And the cost of losing those things can be a strong deterrent from courageously speaking one's mind. However, that said, the, the principle of standing up to protect one's rights, as well as the basic principles of honesty, moral virtue, and ethical behavior are noble causes. That's a good point, Sharon. We all need to have a sense of moral justice in our approach to unethical behaviour, so it stirs something deep within our character when we see it. But simply being offended by wrongdoing is not enough. Courage comes in confronting those feelings deep inside, trusting your gut instinct and acting on it by taking action. I've got a great, great example around ethics in the workplace that I've personally experienced, but we'll come to that later. Sibsey and Engineers Australia and most other professional institutions have guidelines covering ethical behaviour, not least because the very term professional is supposed to stand for something, right? Are you professional? Let's start by looking at the SIBSI Code of Conduct and ethical procedures for our membership. Well, SIBSI is involved in developing the following statement, a statement of values and principles that guide engineering practice and the code of practice published by the participating engineering institutions. This statement comprises four fundamental principles, considering ethics that sit alongside the SIBSI Code of Conduct and together, which should guide an engineer in achieving the high ideals of professional life. So these are accuracy and rigor, honesty and integrity, respect for life, law, and the public good, and responsible leadership, listening and informing. It's not surprising that Engineers Australia have a very similar code of ethics to SIBSI. However, what stood out for me when I was researching for this podcast was the section on promoting sustainability, which was particularly relevant to our listeners. So what is promoting sustainability? According to the Engineers Australia website, it's engage responsibly with the community and other stakeholders. Practice engineering to foster the health, the safety and well-being of the community and the environment. And last, balancing the needs of the present with the needs of future generations. So all these principles express the beliefs and values of the engineering profession and are amplified in the statement, which is available to download at www.sibsy.org.au if you look under the About Sibsy and Governance section. 
I can also add, being a mother of two, I know firsthand that if bad behavior is left unchecked, it just continues to get worse. And I can appreciate that ethics without a component of courage to stand up for it keeps it in the realm of philosophy rather than in reality where we all live and work. So what does courage look like from a nine-to-five in the office workplace? There are no crowds of onlookers or TV cameras to record your courage or pass judgment. It's usually just you and the client, or you and your work colleagues, or you and your direct line manager in the daily face-to-face encounters or on the other end of the phone. Which leads us nicely to introducing our very special guest in this episode, Alan Orbert, who is joining us to discuss ethics and are you doing the right thing? Alan has been heavily involved with various professional associations, institutes, industry bodies, having been an office bearer for Engineers Australia, president of ERA, and fulfilling various councillor positions with RACCA, AMCA, and with SIBSI. He remains active in the industry in the Society of Building Services Engineers, um, the Australian Building Codes Board, Energy Efficiency Working Group, um, and lecturing in building services at Sydney University. In 2014, Alan was also inducted into the ARBS Hall of Fame. Wow, what an extensive portfolio, Sharon. A very warm welcome to you, Alan, and thank you so much for joining us to engage in some thought-provoking discussion around ethics. Are you doing the right thing? Paul, Sharon, thank you very much for inviting me to be here today, and I'll uh, looking forward to the following conversation. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Alan. So we'll start off. Um, back in May 2013, the Sibsey New South Wales chapter and the Engineers Australia, Society of Building Service Engineers, which you're part of, Alan, organised a joint, joint thought-provoking session exploring the dilemma of ethics, which was very well attended at the time. I remember you facilitated the session really well and obviously have prior knowledge and experiences that inspired you to interact very well with his honour, Judge Ronald Solomon of the New South Wales Court. So, what, Alan, so Alan, what do you think or consider are the key points when considering ethics? Thanks, Paul. Uh, one of the main takeaways I got hearing uh, Judge Ron Solomon talk was to the extent that ethics do vary with time. And ethics today and what we consider value in ethics today might be quite different from the 1950s and 1960s. Uh-huh. So this is a little bit of a moving feast, which to some extent uh, complicates our life in making ethical decisions. Um, and the other, the other issue, uh, a main issue to me, and, and Sharon nicely gave us an introduction about uh, reality and theory, mm-hmm. the code of ethics from SIBSI and Engineers Australia are excellent guidelines into yeah. how we should all conduct ourselves. But part of the problem is is the interpretation of these guidelines. That's right. And if, for instance, in our normal working lives, as you outlined, Paul, we come across a conflict of interest mm-hmm. with a badly behaving client who wants to pay us a lot of money yeah. to report or to come to some finding which we think isn't correct, mm-hmm. that's a difficulty, or uh, a large client on on whom your business or your practice is dependent on for current and ongoing work wants you to do something you don't agree with, can you walk away from that client? Can the business walk away from that client? So the theory of integrity and honesty is is there for us all to see, but sometimes in practice it's very difficult to 
to make those judgments. Mm-hmm. And for that, possibly Sibsi and our peers need to do some mentoring for us so we can handle those t- tricky decisions. That's a good point, Alan. Yeah. Um, just going back to the session that we had, um, we, we had a, a, quite a few good questions that were um, put into the spotlight. And they're looking at sort of, you know, how gifts can be construed as bribery and corruption. Mm. And so perhaps we could start there. So got a few questions from the event. So starting off. So Alan, what do you think about, is it okay to accept a coffee from a service provider? Yes, I think that's, we've all got to make value judgments about what's significant and what's trivial. Mm-hmm. And we would regard a coffee um, or even a bottle of wine or something like that in the context of what we're doing is fairly trivial. I don't see any problems with that at all. Wonderful. If one of your service providers offered to wine and dine you though, or at a footy or the theatre, would you accept that? Um, I would think that's okay in the normal course of events, mm-hmm. but I would declare it to my management and line manager. Good advice, Alan. So what if they said they were going to invite you, but decided, but decided to give you, say, $125 instead? Would you take the money and run? Is there a difference? Yes, I think there is a difference. If you press me and say, why is there a difference? Because the quantum might be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I'm not too sure, but to me, the intent is very clear. General socialising is, yeah. is, and I said before, Ron, uh, uh, Judge Solomon talked to us about this, about social norms of the day. I think uh, socialising, whining and dining, lunch and dinners is a norm. Yeah. Cash in an envelope is not a norm, not in our culture. I agree totally. Um, I recall earlier in my career, manufacturers regularly offered junkets to engineers, yeah. and this would often involve a trip perhaps overseas to visit a manufacturing plant. But often you'd be considered to be crossing the line in terms of ethics and bribery and corruption. I always remember my line manager at the time, Carl Harrop, who was um, he's also one of the best mentors I ever had, gave me the best advice ever. He advised me, whatever you do, always consider the aftermath, what course of action you take. Say, like, if it was published in the internal intranet or word got out to your colleagues that you were away partying and enjoying yourself while your colleagues were working to issue a project, would you still make the same choice? It certainly makes you think. So, Alan, would... Would you or do you accept Christmas gifts from service providers? You know, a bottle or two of wine perhaps, or what about a $100 gift card? Would that be acceptable? Um, yes, Paul, I do accept Christmas gifts <laughs> in the normal sort of Christmas gift. You know, um, nobody's, nobody's offered me a Mercedes car or a $100,000 anything, so I haven't had real moral pressure. Uh-huh. I have no difficulty accepting the, you know, the normal run-of-the-mill uh, gifts that I'm offered. Yeah. I've never been offered uh, cash. And I I don't want to sound holier than thou here, but I think if, if I was offered cash, I would refuse the cash. Somehow, to me, this is a personal decision, not a professional decision. I think cash is a, is a line that I wouldn't, like to, I wouldn't like to cross. So I think normal gifts under the, the current... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Moral standards, I think, are quite okay. And I also, like you, Paul, I've been on junkets to uh, Japan and Asia to see manufacturing facilities. Yeah. And much as they are a junket and they're meant to influence us in a particular choice, they're also very informative, very professional. There's 20 or 30 of our peers there. You know, we're all in the same boat. I don't think there's an issue with that at all. Wow, thanks, Alan. Um, I can see why Paul suggested you for this guest spot. Your background knowledge on the subject is terrific. I, I, I quite agree, and I quite like your point about um, intent. Um, and I found, yeah. uh, you know, 
that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but everyone makes mistakes. This is a sort of, uh, everyone makes mistakes, and part of the everyday learning experience, especially so with younger engineers and graduates, hypothetically, if you found that you'd made a mistake on a project and that might have safety implications, but will cost the company money to rectify, do you own up to that? I mean, well, look, I guess it's uh, I easy for me for some historical reasons. With my uh, 40 years in the industry, I've for most of that time I've been the boss of my own outfit. So the buck's always stopped with me. So it was my decision to spend the money, and I didn't have to own up to the boss because I was the boss. <laughs> so apart from some pain from the wallet, uh, I made the easy moral decision. And also, as all of us know who've worked in the industry, my, my, my experience is mistakes don't get buried, they resurface, and not too far down the line either. So my view is if there's a mistake, it's always cost-effective and morally correct to fix it quickly and promptly. So that's your advice to young That's engineers. my advice. It's <laughs> not just a moral. Morally, it's correct. And, and, and financially and uh, from a business point of view, it's absolutely the best way to go. Brilliant. So tell us, what is the biggest ethical dilemma you've personally faced in your professional career? Okay. Well, over the years, I've accumulated quite a series of war stories, as most of us have. <laughs> but one that comes to mind is, and it's quite, I think, relevant to this discussion... I was, um, I was a, an expert witness as a mechanical engineer uh, for a court, um, a, um, a construction issue with defects that was in court. My job was to inspect the building. This was a high-rise, multi-hundred apartment building, and it had defects in the essential fire safety services. Um, the statement of claim, there are all sorts of other experts who looked at this, that, and the other. So the, 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 uh, the defects list was items A, B, and C, and I was asked to report on them. When I did my inspections, I also noticed there were some major defects, uh, E and F, that weren't in the original list at all. Okay. I mentioned to them to the barrister, who was a QC, who was running the case. The barrister said to me, it's not your job to save the planet. It's not your job to stop the, the, the sky falling in. It's your job as an expert witness, as part of my team, to give me the information I want to win this case for our client. Oh, so see. I'm not interested in external comments or other, other stuff that you've seen. To which I replied, I've got an issue here. This is a fire safety issue. In my professional opinion, that building is not safe to occupy and these defects have to be fixed or it will not be safe to occupy. My Engineers Australia, Sibsi Code of Ethics, tells me I can't walk away from this. He says, that's your decision. There's plenty of consulting engineers out there. You let me know 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. You either withdraw your comments and take this section out of your report or just walk away and we'll get somebody else. Oh, I see. So went home, had a bit of a think about it. And uh, I was a little bit lucky because, and uh, my colleagues will recognise this, sort of, uh, this sort of judgment, to give me some backup on fire safety issues, I had also enlisted the paid support, of course, of a CSIRO fire safety division. So I had CSIRO officers spot-checking my inspections and also taking their photos and also doing a random test report. Yeah. So when I spoke to my barrister colleague, possibly an ex-colleague, my barrister <laughs> colleague the next morning, I reminded him 
okay, you can easily get rid of me, but in evidence, ready for discovery, in the report and the photos, is the CSIRO documentation. And I would say there's no way you'll be able to have a discussion with CSIRO to have them remove this documentation from the report. He thought about it for about three seconds and he said, okay, we'll continue as you, as you, as you suggest. So I sort of had a moral dilemma that sort of went away. But I have to say, um, if I hadn't had that CSIRO backup or that sort of argument, I think I would have had to walk away from the job because the consequences of leaving a building with obviously... And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a minor performance trivial issue. It was a work, not work, completely black and white issue, which would have been discovered subsequently. As I said before, I can pretend I'm moral and holier than thou, yeah. but in the back of my mind is, as Paul said earlier on, what happens tomorrow and the next day and the yeah. next day? Obviously, this defect would, be, would have been discovered. The whole thing would have been shown to be a complete nonsense, yeah. and every would have been, everybody would have been in trouble. So... And then your reputation's on the line again. All of that, reputation, PI policy, all the rest of the stuff. So as always, back to what I said before, get onto it early and fix it quickly. Okay, thanks. So everyone wants to do the right thing. Although sometimes in the workplace, you find yourself in a predicament that can spiral out of control. What particular advice are the engineers of the... uh, particular advice would you give to our listeners, especially young engineers, um, the next generation um, and future generations? Yeah, what would you give to them? What, to avoid being involved in these conflict mistake situations? Yes, or dealing with them when they find themselves in there. Well, assuming that your company has some mentors, some senior engineers, some more experienced people, the first thing you do is discuss it with your peers and colleagues at work who have seen all this before and you have a bit of a collegiate decision on what to do because okay. it depends on your company culture and it depends on what the what the uh, proposal was in the first place, what the expectations of the client are, all those sort of issues. If you've got a dodgy client and a dodgy situation and everybody wants not wants to cover this up and walk away, I think it's very it's very clear morally and I would say to the young engineers the point I made before these problems don't go away. They all come home to roost. The earlier you get onto them, the earlier you get them fixed and documented, uh, the less the problem. And you can actually turn a disaster into an advantage. My experience is with a sort of client, and maybe I've just been lucky yeah. <coughs> over the years, um, if you promptly tell the client there's a major problem with the cost and time implications of a project, any re well, my experience with clients is they might get angry and they'll blow the top and all, and all that yeah. stuff goes on, but basically they're grateful because the project at the end of the day has to be successful, has to be signed off, has to be has to work. There's all sorts of layers of uh, council approvals and authorities and 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 and, and public uh, documentation. All that's got to be right at the end of the day. So own up, fess up early, yeah. get it fixed early. And it's to everybody's advantage. Really? There's no way... In, I can't see how that can be avoided. Because in in um, in looking at building defects that have occurred after the event, um, there's, there's a paper trail, there's a responsibility trail. We've got seven years' uh, responsibilities here under home building 
um, legislation for domestic and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So it doesn't go away. It all comes back. Yeah. And if your peer group at work, your boss, your peer group, your mentors don't appreciate that, I think you've got to you've got to yell it loud and clear. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is not to sort of um, recoil and take it all on yourself, but to speak to no. your no, you've got to you've got to share it around the team. Yeah. And unf- if and if and I haven't had this experience, but if unfortunately you're an employee, you're a junior employee of a team that doesn't want to share the responsibility and just dump it all on you and not help and not assist and not be collegiate about it. Where do you go then? I, I don't know where you go in. That's the whole whistleblower, all that sort of stuff. I just, I have to say, Paul, Sharon, I have to say I don't know what you do with them. I, it's really, it's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult. One assumes mm-hmm. that the sort of companies we're all involved in, in that call themselves engineering companies and professional companies, aren't those sort of people. Okay. That's a bit simplistic. Yep. That's the way it is. I do have another war story from, from overseas. This Go is on. some big picture <laughs> stuff. I have a colleague, and this is sort of instructive. I have a colleague who, who was a lawyer mm-hmm. in the UK... He was the principal partner in a major construction company that was working in the Middle East for Middle East infrastructure programs. And I'm I'm not casting aspersions on anybody here, but to do work in the Middle East, they have different senses of values. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen from the Australian Wheat Board and other, there, there needs to be other methods of payment than the normal sort of invoice payment right, situation. Okay, yeah, Paul, Paul's nodding over there. Okay, <laughs> There needs to be other methods of payment or the project doesn't go ahead. So my, my friend, being a senior lawyer with a senior legal firm, and he was you know, doing all the construction, contract construction work on this major project, billions of dollars involved, many hundred thousand dollars of fees. He was in this situation. So what he did, he rang the Law Society in the UK. He told them what was going on. Mm-hmm. He asked for their opinion on how to handle this because, you know, British exports to the Middle East, blah, blah, yeah. blah. They sell arms, they sell bombs. You know, they used to ship slaves. That stopped a while ago. <laughs> but they're still into all this sort of stuff. So their advice was, declare it to us. Okay. Give us details of the whole transaction the commissions, the fees, we'll keep it on record and nothing more will be said from our point of view. But if something comes up in the future, you be seen to be professional to the extent that you can operating as a UK professional. Okay. So we're, we're dealing with different countries where the ethics may be yes. slightly different. Yes. Um, I guess the key is then to just be declare and be honest about... Um, what it is that you need to do to transact in that environment. That, that's my view. I mean, I'm an Australian practitioner, so I haven't had big picture yeah. multinational experience, but I would guess this is a conversation that goes on every month in every office around the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Paul, Overcoming your fears and stepping out of your comfort zone is a challenge that we all face in our day-to-day lives. But asking for help and sharing your worries by confining your colleagues or your line manager sounds pretty simple. However, the fear of being exposed to a whistleblower or having the spotlight firmly on you can be pretty daunting. Some of the biggest figures in the 20th century stood up for what they firmly believe in and have made a significant sacrifice. So, Alan, can you give us an example of the best way to tackle that type of situation, especially for engineers employed with the, you know, the larger corporations? 
Yes, it's a very tough question, Paul. Mm. Look, I would say it's, it's completely a function of the culture and ethics within the firm. Yeah. Your employer, the principals, the directors, your line manager and the senior engineers. It's totally dependent on them. Mm-hmm. If you've made the unfortunate, unintended decision to go into employment yeah. with a team who are not professional, then you're going to you may well suffer all the consequences. And I don't know how you protect yourself against that. I'm going to be simplistic and pathetic here and just say leave. But that's you <laughs> it's know, probably the best advice, actually, yeah. yeah well, but that's, it's easy to say, very hard to do. Yes, Jobs are true. hard to get. You've got a wife, you've got a mortgage, all that sort of stuff. You need the monthly income. Yeah. So it's very hard to, to do that. and not be, It's very hard not to be part of the culture of your organisation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a lousy organisation... My advice is just work your way out of there yeah. in, in the best way possible. Yeah. Because you're not, you, as a junior engineer, you're not going to change the culture in the organisation. Yeah, that's right. Sound yeah. advice. Yeah. I mean, sometimes as well, you don't, you don't want to leave. And you, you know, you work maybe working for a company or, or with colleagues as well that are, you know, you get on really well with. And it's, it's unfortunate if you have to leave because of that sort of circumstance. I agree. Yeah. Very difficult. Very difficult. And you hope. But if, you, if your line manager or somebody in your little team mm-hmm. isn't, isn't appropriate, then hopefully you can go to the directors or the next level up and get the whole thing sorted out. Of course. Alrighty, thanks, Alan. Now it's time for a little fun and light-hearted questions revolving around you, Alan. Oh, okay. So over to you, Sharon, for the Rapid Roundup. It's time for Rapid Roundup. Bondi Radio. I am loving this theme of ethical dilemmas that you've raised earlier, Paul. So I think for today's rapid roundup, we could continue with a few more dilemmas if Alan's up for it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'll do my best to be honest. <laughs> and Paul, feel free to chirp in too if you have any strong feelings to share. Shall do. Okay. So, Alan, have you ever broken something like a window and blamed it on someone else? Uh, at home to escape the wrath of the wife? Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever finished the last drop of milk and put the empty carton back in the refrigerator? Uh, only at home, not at the office. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation where you fudged your age? No, it's not. a For, for middle-aged plus guys, it's just not an issue. <laughs> not an issue for me. Not for a cheaper ticket or a fare? Or <laughs> no, no oh, not, an issue, not an issue. Too good. Have you ever pretended to be someone that you are not? I don't think I'd be game. <laughs> I, Other than I, on I Halloween. Don't, you don't need to. I don't, I, no, I don't think that's ever, it's ever fronted, no. Have you ever fibbed about your work experience on a resume? No, that hasn't, been, that hasn't been necessary either because hopefully at the interview stage, whatever's on the piece of paper becomes a bit irrelevant because as you discuss you know, people, I've done lots of professional interviews, as I'm sure Paul has, mm-hmm. and it's obvious after about 30 seconds that the people are completely, uh, you know, as per their resume, it yeah. all becomes very obvious very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So have you ever, if you, oh, here's an if, what if. If you found a $50 note blowing past you along the sand down at Bondi Beach, would you pocket that? Of course. <laughs> um, now tell me, can ethics be taught or is it something that you're born with? Look, that's a, that's a hell of a question. I think all of us, in, I think we get morality from our parents around the kitchen table, around the crib. I think, uh, you know, morality and ethics are something you learn 
hopefully in a in a in a properly functioned family, mm -hmm. and then hopefully that's also supported by your school, university, or whatever educational training system is. Hopefully, and hopefully it's reinforced by it's reinforced by your employer as well because you need that. I think before you start work, yeah. I couldn't imagine if you started work as a young engineer with no background of morality and ethics, it would be quite difficult to place yourself within the environment. So hopefully it all starts at home. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. So tell me, who is the most ethical character in a book that you have ever oh, read? Oh, God, what a question that is. Um, look, you ne so you need somebody who is in some huge conflict of interest and, uh, and work their way through and maybe paid a, uh, a major price. Um... Um, most of my heroes are sort of sporting, historical, you know, the Captain Cooks of the world who do wonderful explorations. Mm -hmm. um, is there anyone there? Um, Gage is an ethical hero. Or yeah. someone you could look up to sort of in that line. On the ethics side. Um, yeah. Was faced for some big ethical to that well ignoring all the biblical stories because there's, <laughs> there's plenty of those in in the book yeah. if, if one is a is a believer in the book there's plenty of those in the book but just coming back to normal real people um look i can't no, no i haven't got Do you know who comes to mind for me yep. um i don't no. know if you've read to kill a mockingbird of course mm -hmm. um Oh, like great Atticus, example. Yeah, Atticus Finch. Is it that's, that's a great example, Sharon. That's a very clever example. That's terrific. Yeah, yeah. I find he, him to be quite a stand-up Yes, yeah. So then on the flip side of that, my question is, what is the most unethical character or villain of all time? Oh, yeah. obviously Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, these guys. Yeah. They, they, their standouts, Pol Pot. All these guys that have, what not to these do. psychotics <laughs> that have been to the top and use their deranged minds to inflict a hell of a lot of damage, they've got to be the top of the line. Yeah, so they wouldn't be the type who were sitting around the family table when they were little, little forming good ethical well, you, <laughs> you just, you just wonder, you just wonder how it all, how they went that way. My next question, if Alan walks into a bar, is he ordering a red, a white, or something else? Red. <laughs> that was quick. Um... Does Alan prefer to spend his time at the beach, beach. in the mountains? Beach. Go no further. <laughs> yep, yep. We're at the beach now, Alan. Yeah, we're at the beach yeah. now. Thank you, Paul. You Thank you, stand. Sharon. It's terrific. <laughs> and where is your favourite place to contemplate life's most challenging dilemmas? Oh. Um, look, just relaxing, uh, relaxing somewhere, uh, somewhere with a, with a nice view of uh, not, not in the middle of a big noisy city. So somewhere that's quiet with a beautiful view. Mm -hmm. I said beach, but in mountain, lake, countryside, trees. Yeah, um, my family and I have just come back from a few days in Tasmania, which was just absolutely beautiful. gorgeous yeah. because of all of that. So I think, in general, the countryside. The countryside oh. is just lovely. Wonderful. Thanks, Alan. You've been very brave sport through that, and you passed with flying colours. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Some light-hearted fun there. And fantastic questions from yourself, Sharon which provided some fascin fascinating insights into the legend that is Alan Obrard. I just have to say, Alan, if I, could, I can actually listen to your voice all day, it reminds me of Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, You should Paul. start a sideline and record audiobooks. Be a great hit. <laughs> anyway, back to the subject at hand. 
I mentioned earlier that I found myself in a very strange predicament revolving around ethics. Some time ago, in my career, a new and highly confidential project landed in my inbox where I was sent some concept drawings to review. Upon opening the package, my first reaction was just laugh. From reading the title bar and the architectural drawing, it read, Sex Establishment. You guessed it, the project itself was an extension to an existing fully functional brothel, which I found very surprising. Upon questioning if this was the right thing to do or the right project for the company to be associated with, I was just told to view it or treat it as a six-star hotel. After all, it's all fully legal here in the NZ region. I still remember telling my wife that I was working on a brothel. I can tell you, when I told her that evening when I had to go for a site inspection to a working brothel the very next day, she just didn't have to say anything at all. Just that piercing look she gave me, it said it <laughs> all. <bet>. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alan, in your illustrious and extensive career, what's the most strange, strangest place or unexpected predicament you've ever found yourself in from an ethics perspective, and how did you deal with it? Very good, Paul. That's, yes, I've also had some brothel experiences. <laughs> I've, uh-huh. done, I've done some ventilation and air conditioning in the touch of class which was one of Australia's leading brothels of the day. Mm-hmm. And I've done some work back in the, before all you guys were born, when the Vietnam War was on and we had lots of uh, American troops visiting Australia for what they euphemistically used to call R&R. Yeah. Lots of activities in the cross. Um, I remember I'd, I'd done on a DNC basis an air conditioning job in a bar which was called the Bourbon and Beefsteak Bar. Um, it was just a bar for entertainment of mainly American troops. Yeah. All sorts of other activities went on. Who knows, you know? It was reputed later to be a you know, cash exchange, money laundering, drug dealing, female selling, you know, the full catastrophe. Uh-huh. Which, of course, being a young engineer, I know I was just doing an aircon job. You know, Paul, 120 people, you know, so many watts per square metre, a bit yeah. of outside air, you know, yeah. that sort of yeah. stuff. So I did all the usual naive air conditioning stuff and the aircon worked. Yeah. When, I went to, when I went to get paid, the boss's name was... Um, Bernie at the time, I won't give his surname, <laughs> the boss's name was Bernie, and yeah. I went up to Bernie and said, you know, I, I was just running a DNC contracting business, small, medium-sized business, I need to get paid at the end of the month, and um, he said to me, look, I'm not quite ready to pay yet, the cash flow's been a bit slow, all that sort of stuff, and I said to him, mate, I'm not interested in that, I'm a small Aussie businessman. You know, you're an American uh, visitor here running a big establishment. I want to come back tomorrow uh, and collect the money or there'll be a problem. He said, oh, hmm, all right. What time? We made a time tomorrow. That night I get home and in the papers there's a two-page expose of Bernie, this guy, who's wanted by the CIA. Oh, no. He's been <laughs> drug running, gun running over the Pacific for 10 years. Uh-huh. He's oh, reported God. to have done you wouldn't even read the list. Yeah. So I'm reading the paper. I'm saying <laughs> and I'm saying to my wife, "Look, I'm going to collect the money tomorrow. If I don't come back, <laughs> ring the police, you know?" So I went there. He was yeah. all smiles, gave me an envelope with the money. Yeah. That was the end of the issue. So, you know, that was one of my nearest brushes with something that could have been, mm-hmm. I don't know. You're up front, you Dangerous. smile, you know, and it all, uh, if you're lucky, it yeah. all happens for you. Fantastic story. Thanks, Alan. In a similar vein to Paul's example, would you consider that it is ethical to work on projects that cause long-term addiction? For example, 
um, large tobacco companies, casinos that can cause, you know, gambling addictions. Mm. Is this me? Yeah. Okay, well, look, that's another very difficult question. Look, I guess, look, I guess as a professional engineer, my view would be, and, this, and I'm not an apologist for the tobacco industry, I think it's the whole industry is disgusting, mm-hmm. but... It is a legal activity in Australia. There's no laws about, you know, other than yeah. the under 18 and all the usual stuff. So tobacco can still be sold here as a uh, as a legal product. So if I was called to do a big ventilation job for WD and HO Wills or Philip Morris or something like that, I wouldn't decline. I would do the job. I wouldn't okay. have an issue. Yeah. So but but other than, you know, if, if I was had to ventilate a, a you know a marijuana plant in in Mudgee, that's a slightly <laughs> that's that's a slightly different issue okay that's a no thank you that's a slightly different issue thanks but no thanks um, so do you think that there is enough or too much regulation on ethics within building services what are the steps in engineer oh, yeah so maybe if you answer that one well, well as I, as i as i fork, as i indicated right at the very start um, look, so regulation it can be a huge barrier to business and innovation and smarts. It can be. Yeah. I think one of the, and this may be a personal hobby horse, and over the, my years of frustration and, and time-wasting committee work, the most frustrating and the most time-wasting has been in trying to secure security for payment for contractors and subcontractors. That's a separate issue. But I think a, a, a big lack in the in the ethics provision, certainly in the construction industry, is this issue about can you walk away from a client who's pressuring you to do something that you consider or our code of ethics would consider unethical. Like if you're asked to do an environmental uh, impact assessment on a project and you're asked to look at issues A and B, as I indicated before, but this C and D obviously a problem and you're not asked to do C and D. The client says, don't go to C and D, just do A and B. And you know what sort of answer I'm expecting, mm-hmm. don't you? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a bit of an issue. And it's, it's out of control. If you're small business or large business or multinational, it's out of control if the, if the amount of the work is a significant part of your business's turnover. So if you're doing a million dollar a year business, and you've got a client that's an $800,000 a year client, Yikes. very difficult to walk away from your major client and tell him no more because that's going to be a problem. So uh, I think there should be something in, and I'm not smart enough to know what the something should be. I think what's lacking from the commercial side of our codes of ethics is some indication as, as to how businesses, professional uh, consultancies, contractors, manufacturers can protect themselves by not getting involved to such an extent that they cannot walk away and satisfy the uh, the code of ethics. I think that's an ongoing problem that SIBSI and other professional institutes should look at. Okay, thanks for that. So you did touch on environmental um, kind of issues. Do you think it's ethical for an engineer to work on a project that could have significant long-term environmental damage? Now, again, this is not... Elite like tobacco, it's not illegal. Yeah, but it's imp- it's important. Uh, I think I've I think the answer is yes because being a naive engineer still, 
a few decades on, I'm naive enough to think that engineers are here to save the planet. So if we have the opportunities to work on environmental programs, we should have the environmentally to, uh, we should have the opportunity to improve the environment, do good, uh, do risk and harm minimization, uh, protect the public and all that sort of stuff. The problem is if you're working for a client who has another point of view. Yeah. That's the issue. So I've got no issues doing any sort of environmental uh, work from the point of view it should improve the situation. Mm -hmm. As I said, my problem is if the client doesn't want you to improve the situation, then you're right up there against the walk away, uh, the walk away decision. Okay. And not only walk away, I should have said. So if you walk away, do you then have an obligation to report this nasty goings on to other authorities? Yeah, that's a good point. Do you? So you walk away, you know something bad's going on, what do you do? Ring up state or, or, or federal government, tell them there's an issue here? That's the question. Okay. Mm. With uh, recent issues associated with fires spreading in high-rise buildings, due to the incorrect or wrongly selected materials used in the installation of facades, has effectively contributed to multiple fatalities in recent times. An engineer, somewhere along the line, must have failed in their duty of care. In terms of acting professionally, in their accuracy and rigour, their honesty and integrity, integrity, their respect for life and responsibility for informing and, and highlighting the issues at hand, just like you were highlighting earlier with your, um, with your war story there, Alan. <laughs> so based on this, and what is the final piece of advice you'd like to share to provide engineers, whether they're on site undertaking a defects inspection, for example, or the, imp the importance of not to sweep any issues under the carpet? Well, it's, uh, Paul, that's, that's a hell of a good question. It's, it's a, and we've covered this to some extent in other parts of this conversation. Um, f first of all, as an engineer, you have to be fully across all the, technical all the technical issues in your brief. You can't just take a little narrow view of one part of the problem. You must ensure, and if you don't, and as I say to my students and, and other colleagues when I'm discussing this, as engineers, as technicians, we can't be expected to know everything about everything. That's completely ridiculous. But we are expected to know what we don't know. So when you're in a situation, you should know what your bit of the turf is, mm -hmm. and you should have enough big picture awareness to know what other people's turf is, and you need to ensure that the other people are looking after their turf. So in this particular example, um, as an individual and as part of a team, we've got an obligation to make sure that the whole picture is properly covered. And if it's not being covered, collegiate, your colleagues, the boss, the line manager, the directors, yeah. all have to be involved. I have to say with the, you know, the Grenfell fire in, 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 in the UK, it's, it's just incomprehensible to me. I know. And, and a few others. I mean, I've read the Sibsi reports, you know, Paul and I have read lots of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely incomprehensible to me. And we've got some stuff going on in Australia as well. To the extent that this um, material has been allowed to progress. And having seen the TV show that shows the fire testing, and I've been involved in fire testing materials. Mm -hmm. I've been to CSRO Labs in, in North Ryde. Yeah. I've been to AS uh, 1540. Uh, testing, mm -hmm. it's incomprehensible to me how this product has been allowed to be uh, approved and used in the applications it has. That's right. You just touched upon there as well, Alan, you're also a lecturer. Um, so what kind of changes have you seen in the education standards and what are students learning now that perhaps they weren't learning like 15 or 25 years ago? 
Yeah, that's a terrific question. Look, I guess my problem with current education, and I'm probably part of the problem, is that... Yeah, definitely part of the problem. <laughs> it's There's more and more use, as we all know, of powerful software packages mm-hmm. to solve, pro- well, solve in inverted commas problems. Yeah. So in the good old days, when I, had my, when I was at university and we, there were no software packages, there were no computers, this is the 1960s, I have to admit, we did everything with a slide rule and a piece of paper and a pencil. Yeah. Not to say we got more stuff right then than now, that's not true, mm-hmm. same level of mistakes I'm sure. But the issue is now for educators, with a huge use of powerful software packages, is the garbage in, garbage out issue. That's right. We've got young practitioners who are using these very powerful programs. They've got no idea what the answer should be. And my mentors at uni always used to tell me, you don't start a problem unless you know what the answer is. Mm. So this is, this, is, this is, I think, the major problem in current education. How do we harness the wonderful software packages that are available to us yes. without all the checks and balances and common sense? And how do experienced blokes like Paul mm-hmm. and myself ensure that you've got a whole team of, of whiz-bang widgets there all clacking and banging in the background? How do we ensure that the answers are reality checked and, and, and correct? It's not the four decimal places we're looking at. Yeah. It's the order of magnitude. Of course. A big thank you to our special guest, Alan Obrard. And of course, the delightful and ever always smiling Sharon Pistonji. <laughs> so some key takeaways from today's thought-provoking session. Going back to doing the right thing, it takes courage to stand up for what you believe in your heart is right. I'm a firm believer in always going with your gut reaction And when faced with a dilemma, the first level of action is your initial reaction. Perhaps by saying something like, hey, sorry, I just can't ethically do it that way, but I think another way might possibly be, it instantly puts the brakes on right away and points to an alternative solution. This is a courageous, ethical reflex. However, in order order for this quick response to become a natural reflex, you need to be prepared in your mind and character and be ready for a response. The second level is to approach the person with whom you have that problem, as Alan suggested earlier. This is not always easy. The majority of us don't naturally like to face up to or confront people. To most of us, the courage to actually go up and talk face to face takes a superhuman level of courage. Your voice trembles, your stomach twists, beads of sweat are rolling down your face. It certainly feels like a life or death struggle, but always remember, courage is about facing difficulty without being overcome by fear. And the third level of action is to find help, especially when someone else's rights or property are to play your needs to make, make things to the next level. Rather than think of yourself as a telltale, consider yourself as a courageous change agent for good. Being labelled a whistleblower is not an easy journey, so you've got to be ready. Having someone fight your battle and for, for you may be harder than fighting it for yourself. You still have to face your co-workers and you lose most or all control over the path to a solution. So if we quickly look back to the SUBSI Code of Ethics and Code of Conduct and Ethics, which we touched upon earlier, this should guide an engineer in achieving the high levels of professional life towards accuracy and rigour, honesty and integrity, respect for life, law and the public good, responsible leadership, listening and informing. So taking this into account, as engineers conducting ourselves in a professional manner requires principles of decency, integrity, and what is good and right are not to be tread upon lightly. 
Ethics is more than just following a set of rules of conduct to be a member of an industry body. It is part of our deeply held belief in a system that believes that makes up the core of our character. It is worth protecting. It is worth stepping out of our comfort zone, which takes courage and will involve making personal sacrifices. In future podcasts, you'll be hearing from the Sibsi legend that is Steve Hennessy, a.k.a. International Sustainability Guru, who will be sharing his thoughts, his knowledge, and all his experiences. I'm sure he's got a few war stories as well, Alan. We'll also be joined by Candice from the CSIRO, who will, be, who will elaborate and provide some good news stories around the STEM project, inspiring young, junior, and high school students into engineering, plus the incredible efforts they are focusing on on encouraging and promoting women in engineering. We'd also like to take this opportunity to express our thanks to our industry sponsors, ARBS, who have made all this possible. Don't forget, the ARBS Expo is coming to Sydney in May 2018, so be sure to check out the largest air conditioning, refrigeration and building service exhibition in the Southern Hemisphere. Please subscribe to our broadcast, where you can replay previous podcasts and keep up to date with future thought-provoking discussions. If you want to find out more about Sibsi, then be sure to look us up at www.sibsi.org. Where you can also sign up for our monthly e news. Our show is produced by Sheena Alexandra and Keith Hodgson at Bondi Radio on the world famous Bondi Beach. Talking Buildings is a Sibsy Australia and New Zealand production. I'm Paul Angus and thanks for listening. Join us for the next episode of Talking Buildings. Broadcasting from the world famous Bondi Beach. Bondi Radio.